And there's no better feedback than someone who's actually using a product, not someone who's, who's kicking the tires, not someone who's kind of playing with a demo, but someone who's actually using the product. We had conviction that if we built it, that there would be users. So then we said, okay, how do we make this happen? And the way I galvanized both the development team and the sales team is like focusing on the customer. Everyone wants to make the customer happy. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm very excited today to welcome Dave Itacheria to Founder Real Talk. Dave's presently CEO of MongoDB, the world's most popular modern database. The company's had an enviable run as a public company since its IPO debut in 2017. The stock IPO'd at 24, and as we're here today, it's well north of 300, so quite an incredible last three years. Dave's had an incredible career as a founder, leader, and CEO for high-growth tech companies as well. And we're going to dig into his background and the experiences that have helped shape him into the leader he is today. We're also going to talk about MongoDB and its story, touch on his views of the future for the company, and hear all about that. Dave, we're really excited to have you with us today. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Glenn, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So before we discuss MongoDB and that chapter of your career, I, I wanted to ask uh, you about your prior experiences and some of the lessons you've learned. If I've got this right, you started your professional career at AT&T, and after a stint at, a, at another telecom, you founded a company called Applica, which quickly merged with Breakaway Solutions. And, and I, remember, I remember Breakaway. You guys took Breakaway public in 99 um, in the market frenzy. And it, it was a very young company, as I recall. I think I looked at a private round of Breakaway maybe six months before. And my recollection is that when the bubble popped, Breakaway kind of popped along with it. It was a difficult ride. So maybe, you know, Talk to us about that time, what that was like, and, and maybe some of the lessons learned there that you take with you today. Yeah, sure. Obviously, I was uh, um, a lot younger and uh, didn't have as, as much as many scars. At that time, obviously, the, the internet rush was in vogue. Everyone wanted to try and get on the internet. And in many ways, you, you, know, you read all these stories in the press about these companies that went public and always felt like the IPO was the finish line. And in reality, it's not the finish line. It's just the start of a new chapter of the company's history. But, but you know, maybe it was naivete on my part and naivete on a lot of other people's part. But we just felt like the goal is to go take the company public. And we did that. We took the company public in October of 1999. It was uh, We had a very frothy valuation. Um, by January, I think our market cap was about $5 billion. And then, obviously, March hit. And our business still did reasonably well, but then as venture capital funding declined for dot-coms and about 70% of our business were dot-coms, it became clear that our business was, was in trouble. And what hit home to me was that, you know, we weren't ready operationally. We just didn't manage the business as tightly as I would have expected. Fiscally, we just, you know, were not ready to be a, a public company and, and most importantly, culturally, we just didn't understand what it meant to be public, that we had to both have a short-term orientation as well as know how to run the business for the long term. And that stayed with me once, you know, we hit the wall. Uh, I left, you know, a little after 2001. 2000 was, a, was ended up being a really tough year. 
And I left the business I ran and ultimately got sold to a company called Totality, which then was acquired by Verizon. And then I tried to figure out what to do. And that's when the uh, light bulb hit, hit me about the challenges that we had running that business. The business was essentially a first generation cloud computing company. And we had data centers around the world. And ultimately, we were trying to offer apps on demand, you know, over the web. And we were just provisioning more and more servers and all these data centers. And there were really no tools to automate the provisioning and configuration and management of the servers. And that's when I thought, wow, that's a real opportunity because we, we knew that mainstream corporate America and other corporations would, would just be, you know, leveraging the internet and building these kind of end tier applications and all the backend complexity, but while the complexity would move to the backend. So that was, uh, that was the spark that led to Blade Logic, um, your, your next company, um, which you, you founded like literally days before 9 11, as I recall. That must have been an incredibly difficult way to start a company. Obviously, well, maybe you could tell listeners, but it was a very successful run for Blade Logic. But what was it like to start a company like that? And, you know, how, how did you manage to get through what must have been a very difficult time to start a business? Well, it was already a difficult time because the bubble had just burst, burst and obviously people like yourself, you know, had some scar tissue and, and were cautious about investing in in new companies. And so, Sad, Sadly, I had more than my fair share of scar tissue after that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we, you know, we, uh, we obviously, you know, got, a, you know, there's lots of questions, lots of diligence and so forth. And we only raised six million. We raised our first, our A round. I said, yeah, six million wasn't A round in those days. You know, and on September fifth, uh, two thousand and one. So it's really six days before nine eleven. Wow. And uh, and then obviously nine eleven nine eleven happened. It was a really scary moment. You know, we wondered if anyone would really care about what we were doing, and it turned out that uh, customers did care. And in fact, we got some early wins at both Sprint and Priceline, who were really kind of development partners with us, who who really understood what we we're trying to do, recognized that they there was nothing else out there. And decided they were going to, you know, work with a small company based out of, you know, Lexington, Massachusetts, and work with them on building the product. And then we just grew from there. And one of the things was, you know, in those times, capital was very scarce and very expensive. And so we really had to build muscles in terms of building our business with not a lot of cash and a lot of wind in our face because, you know, 01, 02, 03 were all pretty tough. Economic. Very tough. Yeah, tough times. But the good thing was that we allowed us to build our muscles around making, you know, you know, good decisions around, around the business, using cash from customer wins to fund the business because venture capital was so expensive. We ended up raising only $29 million cash and actually had $7 million in the bank before we went public. So we were really disciplined about how we ran the business. Uh, and then obviously, you know, we went public and then a little a year, a year later, we got acquired. And the acquisition was, was significant in size. Correct. We were bought for over eight hundred million by BMC Software, which at the time was roughly about a ten x in terms of valuation. And at that time, that was a very heady valuation. It's funny to say that now, given multiples today. Uh, and it was a heady valuation because it was also during two thousand eight, which was when the credit crisis was starting to really take shape, and people started to get very, very nervous. In fact, our deal was announced the same day J.P. Morgan announced that they were buying Bear Stearns for three dollars a share. So people were starting to get very skittish about what was happening in the financial markets. And then we, you know, BMC made this acquisition, and they got a lot of questions from their shareholder base about why are you doing this? This seems pretty dilutive. But they also saw the fact that they needed to reinvent themselves, and that's ultimately how the deal came together. That's cool. I didn't realize that uh, Blade Logic was kind of bookended between the 
bubble bursting and then the great financial crisis. But it almost speaks to the fact that technology and the trends and hitting something right in technology is, is a, it's, a, it's almost like it's divorced from what's going on in the macro economy in some ways. Um, obviously, you need to pay attention to the macro economy, but there's a lot to learn from just you know keeping your head down and building your business no matter the environment. And I, I wanted to ask you, one of the things you've talked about in the past is the importance of bringing together, on the one hand, great product teams uh, with, with great go-to-market teams. And that when you can do that, that's when the magic happens. That's what you said. I'm curious as a leader, how do you try to get both, um, you know, both disciplines, product and engineering on the one hand and go to market on the other? How do, how do you get them humming at the same time and keep them, you know, keep one from tr- overwhelming or being more powerful than the other in an organization so that they work hand in hand and in sync to kind of create that magic? Yeah. So I would say that it really starts with the, le- the leadership of the company. They, they genuinely have to believe that building product and also figuring out the right go-to-market model are important. And then, you know, I've met a lot of, you know, founder CEOs who view go-to-market as more as a necessary evil, and more of a means to an end, and it's all about the tech. And in B2B, in B2B businesses, that's not true. You know, there's lots of great tech that never went anywhere because there was just no way, the, the company just didn't figure out a way to really monetize that technology. Um, and so um, there's obviously some sequencing. One, you naturally start with the product and you have to nail the initial product market fit. But what I find is that when you start getting customers to use the product, you get some really great feedback in terms of, one, either the soft spots of the product that need to be fixed as well as new needs. And there's no better feedback than someone who's actually using a product, not someone who's, who's kicking the tires, not someone who's kind of playing with a demo, but someone who's actually using the product. In fact, in the early days, you know, we used to tell our sales team, it's better to have an unhappy customer than a happy prospect because mm. we want that feedback. Interesting. And that very sharp feedback. And what I find is that, um, <clears throat> you know, when you start thinking about sales, you need to think about, like, why is that ultimately going to be as much of a competitive advantage as your product? And so I thought if I can have two levers that give me com- competitive advantage, one is product and one is my go-to-market um, organization – then by definition, I can even be more successful. And so to me, like building, you know, the right sales or go-to-market operations is all about finding and implicating pain. You know, what is the pain that you're trying to solve? Who cares about that pain? What are the implications of that pain on the business? Pain finds champions. Champions find, find economic buyers. And economic buyers get you to do deals. And ideally, bigger the pain, bigger the deal. Mm. That was our whole methodology and and um, the value of a great sales force is that they give you great feedback about what customers don't like, what's happening in the, in the competitive market, what our competition is doing, uh, changing uh, buying behavior, et cetera. So that provides a great source of information for us to drive product and product decisions as well as marketing and positioning and branding decisions. So that's ultimately how you get that flywheel effect to, mm-hmm. to happen by by you know, listening well to your sales force and, uh, and ideally um, leveraging that insight to, you know, drive product decisions. Very cool. Okay. So, so now I want to fast forward a little bit to, to the Mongo story uh, and see how some of those lessons um, have impacted you at Mongo. Mongo, you joined MongoDB in 2000, mid 2014, which, which was kind of a little bit of an odd time for the business. Um, it was still pre IPO. And as I recall, you know, it had had a lot of excitement around it, but missed, you know, had some unrealistic financial plans uh, that were missed before you joined. And as a result, 
you know, the, the company had, had uh, received investment, some of the investment it had received prior to your joining from some public funds who publicly wrote down the valuation that they were holding MongoDB at. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a, a bit of a, um, you know, tough thing because it gets, it gets in the public eye and, uh, and then employees read about it and it can, you know, it can have an impact on, on how, what people are thinking about the, the, the company that they're working at. So I'm curious, like how morale, what morale was like when you joined. And I'd imagine, you know, when you join a company like that, it was, it was, was still fairly sizable. Um, every day really counts in, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a business that may be, you know, not completely up and to the right. And you've got to, you've got to maybe, you know, get your hands on the steering wheel and make sure you start steering in the right direction. So what did you do to assess both culture and where you were as a business quickly and then, and then make some, make some moves? Yeah, there, there were clearly a lot of problems, Glenn. Obviously, the board had made a decision to uh, hire a new CEO. That t- never happens when things are going well. It's obviously <laughs> gone awry. And when I, you know, met the team and, and spent time with the organization, I quickly realized that we, we didn't. We had a weak leadership team. The culture of the organization was quite bad. The engineers thought the, the sales team were bozos, and the sales people thought the engineers didn't care about making money. Our whole go-to-market operation frankly sucked and we had angry investors and a frustrated board and one of the things that other than that mrs lincoln how was the play (laughs) yeah Um, but here's the reason why i joined because i for a while was a vc myself and i had done some diligence uh, on some other investments that were in the same space and i ended up passing those deals because when i did my diligence mongodb seemed to have much more developer momentum much more, uh, the size of the developer community seems that much bigger. And even the commercial traction, even though it's obviously a lot smaller than seemed uh, way ahead of everyone else. So they obviously did, were doing something right. And so when I, uh, one of the reasons I joined MongoDB is I always felt you never bet against a product that people love. And so when I did my diligence, I realized that there were a lot of problems. But I said, in spite of all these problems, this company is ahead of everyone else. So there's got to be something really good here. And so as a change agent, when you come in, you can't fix every problem right away. You need to prioritize what to fix now and what to fix later. Mm. And one of the things I started with was to fixing sales because I said, I need to make sure I'm getting good feedback from sales organization about what customers are saying and to frankly get some quick wins and, and, and jumpstart, you know, our top line growth. And then I brought in new leadership. You know, I brought in a new CRO, a new C- a CMO, a new CFO, really to change the tone and bring a new approach in terms of running the business. I frankly reset the plan with the board. The, the original plan was underwritten by this huge, you know, round that the company had done. The company was technically a unicorn, but it didn't feel like one. And I just said, hey, I know that was a plan that was underwritten, but we got to, you know, uh, be realistic about where we are. And they were very supportive. And the other advantage of doing that is it, it allowed you to feel like you're winning again. Because whenever you miss plan, it's, it's that awful feeling like, we're, like you're failing. So I reset the plan and said, here's our goals of what we're trying to accomplish and when you start achieving, if not beating those goals, all of a sudden people have a spring in their step. They feel like they're winning again. And that becomes really important. And for the company, you start building credibility and belief that, yes, this company can be a really special company. And so that's ultimately how we decided to, uh, um, you know, um, um, move, build a business back up. And obviously, I can't take all the credit. Had a great team. And I'm really proud of how far we've come since those days in 2014. Just remarkable how far you've come. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, w- when you say you revamped sales, um, my recollection is that you uh, you built out an inside team. 
um, and 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 then and then ultimately a self service uh, go to market as well. In addition to kind of the more traditional, you know, top down selling. We'll talk about your cloud your your cloud launch in a minute. Before we get to that, curious like having you know multiple sales teams. How do you manage to keep them? working together and not kind of stepping on each other's toes? Is there, is there something, you know, something you've used, some techniques you've used? Uh, because while it's great to have, you know, multiple efforts underway, if they're conflicting with each other, sometimes one plus one doesn't, doesn't even equal two. Right. So one of the benefits of being at MongoDB is we're going after a really large market. In fact, I'd argue it's one of the largest markets in enterprise software. And what we realized was that we just can't serve the entire market with one mode of, of how we of distribution being like a direct fields uh, field sales organization, because there's a lot of early stage customers who really valued MongoDB, but their deal size were smaller. And frankly, their decision process was fairly easy because you could quickly get to the CTO or the VP of product or the frankly the founder and get them to buy into whether or not you know it made sense to you know, use MongoDB. So that's why we built the inside sales team. And in the early days, it was a little tough because this was pre our cloud service yep. called Atlas. And so um, we, we, you know, learned some hard knocks about building the inside sales team. But I had conviction that because this market was so big, we just couldn't just have a direct sales force. Then when we launched Atlas, which was our cloud service, then we launched our sales service business because we wanted to offer a, a way for those long tail customers who, frankly, could be two guys in a garage, not just in Silicon Valley or New York, but frankly, in Mumbai or Shanghai, a way to just engage with us and start using. And one of the themes that, you know, when you started talking to, to customers was this notion of differentiated versus undifferentiated work. And mm-hmm. so you know, that's where the cloud service started becoming more important. But back to your your point, the way we 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 segmented the Salesforce was 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 the way we made it work. So we made the our enterprise sales organization really focus on on customers of about two billion in revenue and higher, and our inside sales team was really focused on. At first, it was like five hundred million and lower, but then we realized it was really about hundred million lower because that market was so big that they could do really well just being even more focused. And, and so that's ultimately how we, you know, avoided any friction across the organization. And the other thing it did is allowed us to create a career map for people who maybe started inside sales and then had a chance to earn their stripes to go into the field because every inside salesperson doesn't want to stay as an inside salesperson. They ultimately want to be able to wear, you know, feel like they're joining the varsity team and being a field salesperson, you know, mm-hmm. bigger deals and more complex deals. Yeah, that career yeah. path thing is cool. Very cool. Um, uh, I, I wanted to also ask a little bit about like, you know, Mo- MongoDB is an open source. Um, and, um, you guys have broken a lot of new ground on the open source business model. Um, you know, I can remember, um, you and I have both been around long enough to remember, you know, Red Hat was really kind of the first and only success story in, in software, um, with an open source model. And it was a very different model. Um, certainly than the one you're pursuing today. Um, what was it like when you joined, you know, an open source company? Um, what was the the ethos like in the company? Um, did, did, did everyone realize um, like the importance of building something commercial or were people there kind of, were, some, were there some people there that were just excited about the open source, which is, it's really cool, but it's, you know, not, not, not what a business is all about necessarily. Um, so did you did you sort of have to do some cultural shifting, um, and then how did you um, you know wh- where did you see the value of the open source, 
because obviously, like you said, you you know, it, you, you saw developer momentum. Um, you believed it was there, there was a big big market opportunity. You could have gone and done a lot of different things, um, and so something attracted you to Mongo. Curious how how the open source piece of this factored into your thinking, and then and then sort of what you had to do in those early years. Yeah. So what I'll do is uh, uh, one I'll say is the founders get a lot of credit for this because one of the things that made MongoDB different than any other open source company at the time was that MongoDB was not built on any prior art. MongoDB started with a clean sheet of papers. So one mm-hmm. of the technical acumen of our, of our founders and, and our engineering team today. Um, and so because we, we were starting with a clean sheet of paper, we could choose um, a more restrictive open source licensing model. So most people went with some sort of GPL or Apache license. We went at the time, or the founders chose an AGPL license, which is more restrictive. And the reason it was is that we weren't, the company wasn't looking for the community to do some crowdsourced R&D. We were looking for using, to use open source as a freemium strategy to make it easy for developers to find and use our product and share it with their friends and their networks. So it's really all about distribution and virality versus like driving R&D. And so, um, and so that was in place for, for the longest time. As we started having more success, one of the challenges that came is that there were clearly engineers who really believed in the open source ethos. Um, and they sometimes got nervous with salespeople, you know, who were just focused on you know, winning business because they felt like they were trying to change the world. And, and this was a real cultural challenge in the company because you did have this tension between monetization and adoption. And so what I had to spend time with the, with the people who really believe in open source is that you have to remember, uh, I, I said about 50% of our R&D, and that's true even today, goes to our free product. If we're not successful as a company, you know, we just can't continue to go back to our venture capital and other private equity investors and, and keep asking for money. At some point, we have to become a durable standalone business, and we can mm-hmm. do that by being able to monetize our IP. And and by monetizing our IP, we get more dollars to reinvest back into the product to then reinvest into our free product to make our free product even better. And so that flywheel effect is really really important. And, and similarly for salespeople, I said, you know, monetization is important. So we want to be able to go drive value with customers and we want to win business. And it's important and it's good for the customers to do so because we'll become a stronger and healthier company. And the way I galvanized both the development team and the sales team is like focusing on the customer. Everyone wants to make the customer happy. You know, they come at different angles, but if a customer's happy and they're engaging with you in a, in a, in a high value relationship, you know, all of us win. And so that was the way we slowly got everyone to recognize that it's important for us to build a business. And today, if you look at our accumulative R&D investment is close to $900 million, and about a half of that has gone into our free product. So that shows you that we have become a very successful company and still, you know, live to our open source ethos. That's cool, because there's no way the open source is where it is today without that investment. And there's no way you get that investment without also building a company. So when you, it sounds like that, that flywheel has really begun to spin quickly for you and it, it builds on itself at some point. And so we're, we're as, as many listeners of this podcast know, you know, at GGV, we're, we're, we're deep into the open source world ourselves. HashiCorp, I know a company you know well and many others and are, are benefiting from a, that similar flywheel, but I don't think anybody is as far along as, as MongoDB and the, the project is, incredibly popular with developers globally. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's table stakes. And 
So we made um, a fairly controversial decision at the time, which we look back and I'm really glad we made it, was changing our licensing from AGPL to or what ended up being a proprietary open source license, license called SSPL. Now, why did we do that? So once we saw success with our cloud offering, one of the challenges open source companies have is that the cloud providers can come in and, quote unquote, strip mine your IP, plug that IP into their cloud, offer it as a service and monetize that IP and not have to give anything back to the community or to the company that created the code. And so we felt that that was patently unfair. We felt that, you know, we're investing all these dollars, you know, offering this free product for someone to just take it and not give back didn't make a lot of sense. And so we decided to uh, change our license model to make it even more clear that if you want to offer a MongoDB business service, you're more than welcome to do so, but then you'll have to open source both the code changes you make as well as the underlying management plane that you've created so that anyone else can take that code and, 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 and offer a similar service. This is a way to giving back to the community. And so there were a lot of people worried because the open source community, we try to work with OSI, but at the time they were, they weren't happy about, you know, the, that we had made this unilateral decision. And we tried to explain to them that this is good for open source. You want the open source you know, community to thrive. You want the business model to thrive. Otherwise, people will stop investing in open source business models because people feel like there's no way to really build a viable business. And so um, there was a lot of worry that we get blowback from the community. Like, you know, and what we felt at the heart of it was that if you're a developer in Silicon Valley, in New York, in London, Tokyo, Mumbai, Shanghai, you want to first choose a product that solves your problem, that you, you, know, you want to be able to move fast and build product quickly. So long as it's free, it's source available, are you really going to care about the nuances of whether or not it's endorsed by the OSI or not? We didn't think that that was important. And that was a bet that really played, you know, played out. We never lost any momentum with the community. You know, our business has only grown faster since 2018 when we made the change. And our size of community is so much bigger today uh, than it was two years ago. Yeah, you guys made a very brave decision that's paid off in spades. Before before you even made that decision, though, to back, back to 2016, mid-2016, you launched the cloud product, Atlas. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, was I'm, I'm curious where the idea for Atlas came from internally. Was it, you know, was it uh, just blatantly obvious and everyone knew it? Or was there some... Uh, you know, small team that that broke off and and uh, pursued this idea. Um, you know, what I've perceived in startups, um, particularly as they begin to scale, is that when you have a new idea, it's hard to get attention within a within a bigger company to kind of resource a newer idea and get it off the ground. Um, I'm curious what what that was like. It's become an incredibly important part of your business today. Um, but it started, you know, it started from scratch and you already had a good business, uh, on the on-prem, you know, self-managed part of the side of the house. So tell us a little bit about what that was like and how you were able to make it so successful. Yeah. So, um, our cloud was, our product was always, you know, built for the cloud. And so we saw a lot of people manage self-managing MongoDB in the cloud. And we started seeing obviously the success of RDS from Amazon. In fact, Amazon today acknowledged that RDS has been their most successful and fastest growing service that they've ever created. And we saw a lot of customers, you know, ask the same thing. We work backwards from the customer. Now they want to focus on their time and attention and what they call differentiated work or some differentiated work. And when you're provisioning and managing uh, a complex distributed database, you need to have a lot of expertise on how to set it up, you know, how to upgrade it, how to make sure it scales for performance, 
how to make sure you you back up the, the data properly and so on and so forth. And that takes a lot of time and attention. But how much competitive value is that adding to that business versus, say, you took those dollars and put it into your development capacity to add new capabilities, new features, new products that really, you know, transformed your business. And so increasingly, we saw that customers want to focus on differentiated versus undifferentiated work. So we said, let's go create a cloud service. We see all our model be already used in all the major cloud platforms. We, we had conviction that if we built it, that there would be users. So then we said, okay, how do we make this happen? Because to your point, yes, it's very easy to ignore a small project when you got, you know, the bulk of your business predicated on a, on a different business model. Um, and so we said, and the board, frankly, encourages said like let's disproportionately weigh you know bonuses and and comp on the success of atlas even though it was pretty much you know not even a business and said we want this is so strategic to us we want to align all the execs attention on making atlas successful so we called it let's build a startup within the startup and we had a very startup mindset we hired someone, we recruit someone to just focus on building this part of the business. Hmm. This person is now actually our chief product officer. And he had, you know, one of the things he did really well was he had both great technical chops as well as really understood go to market well. So he, he, he started educating the sales force on how to position Atlas with customers. And, and obviously the product market fit of Atlas was outstanding. And so it just took off. So to, we launched the product in the summer of 2016. We just announced our Q3 results, and Atlas is almost a $300 million business in less than four years. It's absolutely incredible. And almost half of your overall uh, uh, revenue at this point, I think, which is just just incredible. Um, so, you know, in some ways, you know, now it looks obvious, but I'm sure back then people revert to what they know. And something new is, by definition, you know, not something people are going to know as well. How did you get the sales team? Or was Did you... Is this going back to the, the question around different, you know, different go to market, different sales efforts? Was each sales team allowed to sell Atlas um, at the beginning? And like, how did you manage to, you know, get people motivated to sell or compensated to sell one versus one product versus the other? Or did you set did you set it up where, you know, the inside team or the self-serve effort was only Atlas and the other go to markets, you know, could only sell the, the traditional? Yes. Yeah, so the way it worked actually was one sell serve was just a function of Atlas. So that, you know, that grew in concert with the Atlas business. Our inside sales team, as I mentioned, was struggling selling our, our enterprise advanced product because most early stage customers don't want to go manage their own infrastructure. They, they, they think cloud first. And so that, you know, enabled them to say like, okay, we really got to focus on Atlas because we know EA is not really working that well. So, so, you know, uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, necessity drives behavior. Yep. And, uh, and then with our field organization, that's where it took longer because we had to spend a inordinate amount of time. And I think a lot of, uh, management teams underestimate how hard it is to change behavior. So one, Atlas was, uh, is obviously a lower gross margin business because it, it embeds in the service, the underlying storage compute. So our finance team said, should we really pay dollar for dollar for salespeople to sell Atlas versus our on-premise products? And, and we decided if we made the incentives, you know, where they got actually got paid more on our existing product, then they would be less interested in them selling Atlas. So we said, no, let's pay dollar for dollar on Atlas, much like we do with our pure software product, because we know it's so strategic. We know that this is a product that's going to grow. And then we just constantly, you know, went out to the field, educating them, explaining the value proposition. And you have to also remember, 
you know, in the early days, most of our relationships were actually with the ops community because they're the ones who are actually the paying customers. They're the ones buying the management tools and all the enterprise capabilities. We actually were in some ways disaggregated from the end user with our paying customers. And so the ops community didn't really resonate with Atlas because in some ways that was a threat to their to exactly. Their yeah. And so we had to also explain to salespeople that you want to get to developers. Developers love MongoDB. You know, ops guys tolerate MongoDB because they prefer to just everyone stay on one one product or one technology because that makes their life simple. And so that took a long time for the salespeople to understand. There's mm-hmm. a lot of gnashing of teeth, sometimes some hard conversations, sometimes some changes in personnel. But slowly we moved the ship around and really got people to focus on Atlas. And that's when the business really started taking up. And as you can, as you know, once, you know, salespeople see other salespeople winning and doing big deals and all of a sudden word spreads like wildfire and say, okay, there's something real here. Let's get, let's get behind this, uh, this product. Yeah. Then, then you got the snowballs rolling downhill. So, so you took the company public in late 2017 and. It, it was it was a very successful IPO, but but um, you know at the at the time a couple of billion dollar you know handful of billion under a handful of billion dollar valuation. Um, I, I I flagged it at that time as a really important IPO. In fact, I I wrote a post about it. I'll put it in the the show notes um, at the time because I I thought you know this is really the first open source sort of commercial open source company of the new the new model like the open core and then dabbling into cloud model that we've seen. Let's see how the market reacts. One, so you, so you had to sell kind of a new model. You had to sell in the database market, which historically, particularly in the transactional side of the database market, has not been a place that uh, you know new companies have had much success vis-a-vis the oracles of the world. And you know, you also had kind of the cloud players out there. To the extent you know, you were beginning to offer Atlas and promote it as a product. It was still small, but there, you know, there AWS had their own you know, document database service out there. And so, so I'm curious, like, did you encounter, what kind of, what kind of uh, um, friction did you encounter in the IPO process? What was it like to go public? And as you look back on that, you know, any, did you think it was the right time with hindsight to go public or do you wish you had waited or even done it sooner? Yeah. So if you remember, obviously, you know, when I, we started this conversation, we talked about break when I said the company wasn't ready operationally, fiscally, and culturally I felt that MongoDB, you know, one of the things I was trying to do even from 2014 was really start managing business as a public company. You know, when we made a commitment about hitting a number, we actually hit that number. You know, we when we made commitments around product deliverables, we hit those deliverables. And so that slowly start building discipline of managing both short term and long term. And so we felt we were ready. Now, not, not everything was perfect. It never is. There's always some something, you know, that you need to go fix. But we felt the fundamentals of the business were ready. One of the big questions that investors had was about Atlas. Like, you know, they all thought like, you know, can you really build a viable cloud service? Are you going to be roadkill when, you know, AWS steamrolls you over? Yep. And we had a lot of conviction. One of the things that we felt really good about is we knew how popular MongoDB was in the cloud. We, we saw Atlas growing, even though at the time it was low single digits in terms of our total revenue. And we also said that one of the things we offer that Amazon cannot offer is multi-cloud, offer a true multi-cloud option. Mm. We increasingly felt that multi-cloud was going to become more and more important, especially in the database market where customers have a lot of baggage around vendors holding them hostage. And so given all that, we went public. And, you know, I remember one investor in Boston telling me, you know, you're growing fast now, but I'm going to model a certain, you know, decay rate of your growth rate because, you know, I just don't see you, you know, having, you know, being able to have a durable business no matter how big this market is. 
because you're just competing with all the big guys. And I, that, that conversation stayed in my mind. And I'm very proud to say, like, our growth rate has been fairly consistent. Yes, it has some ups and downs, but it's been fairly consistent, you know, since over the last four years, I'm sorry, three years since we've gone public. And we far exceeded everyone's expectation. A big driver for that was Atlas. I mean, Atlas has grown like a weed. Last quarter, it grew 61% year over year. Uh, we have over 22,000 customers, of which about 20,000 are on Atlas directly. And so we just felt like, you know, we had been able to prove. And one of the things I was actually really proud of, to your point, when we went public, we were the first, um, not just open source company, but database company to go public in 26 years. And so we were bringing some real innovation to a market that had, you know, not seen a lot of innovation. And so we broke a lot of ground and I'm really proud of our performance since, since we went public. You did not hit the easy button. You said like, let me take open source database. Like we're going to do a lot of, going to challenge a lot of conventions here. And you mentioned earlier this shift in license, which you did uh, a little bit later when you launched the SSPL license. How important do you think that's been? We, we talked about like, obviously you guys had confidence that it, it wouldn't uh, dilute your, the love that developers feel for MongoDB. Uh, and it clearly hasn't. How important do you think it's been strategically, um, you know, vis-a-vis cloud would-be competition? It's been really important. I mean, we, we believe we have a strong moat around our IP. Um, and we believe that we have the best database in the market. And when we went public, Microsoft already had a clone called, uh, at the time they called it DocumentDB, but then they changed to Cosmos DB. And they basically were trying to mimic our features, but the back end mm-hmm. was on a relational database. And we saw that you can, they could never really simulate all the performance and capabilities of MongoDB because they had to make some trade-offs by building it on a relational backend. And then in early 2019, Amazon announced DocumentDB, uh, which was their clone of MongoDB because they saw how this market was taking off. And at the time, investors got skittish and said, like, you know, our stock took a little bit of a hit and investors were really worried. I remember a bunch of investors came to visit us in the office and were asking us lots of questions. And what we walked them to is said, we did the analysis. And, and, and even today, the document DB only has about 40% of our features and they really suffer with performance. You can't mimic the value of a distributed database by building it on a relational database. And I, and I said, we feel very, very comfortable that we're going to win. And oh, by the way, our platform independence, you know, adds another capability that these proprietary cloud offerings just don't have. And so since then, our business has grown really, really quickly. And in some ways, you know, both Microsoft and Amazon have validated our market because the fact that they're trying mm-hmm. to offer clones tells people that the document model, which we believe is a far superior model for today's application architectures, is a viable approach, not just for, you know, uh, any application, but for the most mission critical applications. And now you see big banks, big telcos, big media companies, big tech companies really running the business on MongoDB. So, uh, um, so yes, competition keeps us on our toes. We have a lot of respect for the cloud providers, and we also partner with them in many ways. And so, uh, so it's a very healthy relationship. And uh, fortunately, we've been able to do well, you know, uh, so far. That's an understatement. Um, you, you know, you, when you joined Mongo, uh, the business was at about a thirty million dollar ARR, I believe. And you're at 600 million today. So that's, that's 20 X in less than a substantially less than a decade. Let's call it, uh, six plus years. That's really remarkable. Something you should be incredibly proud of. And obviously the valuation has followed suit. You know, when you think about all the growth you guys have sustained as a business, 
obviously there's been some great execution that's come along with it. And I'm curious, you know, if there's anything you, you know, any, any techniques you use or, or, or sort of lens you put on managing, uh, your execs and how you think about building a team and continue to evolve that team as your business continues to scale that might be useful for others to think about. Yeah, I would say that um, um, I view my role as CEO really to do three things. Um, one is to be very, very clear on what our strategy is, right? Um, second is to have the right people in the organization, especially the leadership team, to go execute on that strategy. And the third thing is to remove all the obstacles that may prevent people from being successful, whether do we have, you know, as a company financed appropriately, to making sure we have a culture that allows people to move very, very quickly and that we create an environment where people don't just come to work for a job, but they think that they can build a career. And so I, I can do a lot of things, but if I don't do those three things well, then I failed as a CEO. And so, so a big part of that is the right leadership team. And one of the things that I've realized, and I've seen this over and over again, is that it's very rare for people to scale at the same rate of a fast-growing company. You know, and you typically have people who are really good at the early stage, then the mid-stage, and late stage. Now, some people can scale through all the stages, but they tend to be the exception, not the rule. So mm-hmm. as a CEO... You have to assess: Are is your team scaling? You know, as as you know, with the business, because you know, a CMO or a CRO or CTO, you know, even though the title is the same, their job is changing almost every twelve to eighteen months. Very and interesting, yeah. And growing as the needs of that role changes over time. And so, what I find that sometimes companies hit a wall is that obviously they're very loyal to the people who help them build the business, get the business off the ground. But then over time, those people, you know, struggle because the complexity of the business uh, just overwhelms them. And so as a CEO, you have to make those tough decisions about, you know, upgrading people at the right time. Uh, And so I'm very fortunate to have a great leadership team. But to be clear, since we've gone public, we've had four C-level changes. So it's not like the we we haven't had had to make changes in the last three years. And I, and I, I tell people change is a constant. Right. And ultimately, I always think about like if I if, if I don't think about the business and do what's right for the business, I'm penalizing all the great people who are working their tail off to make this business grow, and so that's what really drives me. Really powerful. Um, okay, Dave, um, we're at that part of the episode where we're going to put you on the hot seat and ask you some speed round questions. Just just say the first thing that comes to mind. What's a favorite book or blog that you recommend to other founders? Um, one of my favorite books is Good to Great. I, that, that came out a long time ago, so I'm dating myself. But it <laughs> spoke to leadership and what makes great companies. Now, some of the information is a little dated, but I, I really enjoyed that book. And that, that book's had a profound influence in my life. Great. It's a good one. What's one piece of advice you wish you could go back in time and offer to a younger Dave? Uh, vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. When I was a first time CEO, I always felt like I had to have all the answers and that if I didn't know the answer to a question or couldn't speak confidently about a particular topic, that was a sign of weakness and people would question whether or not I should be in my role. And in some ways, I actually almost suffocated the team. Like I would try to dominate the conversation, try and prove how smart I was, you know, try and make sure, you know, prove that I was on top of everything. And it creates some really dysfunctional behavior in my part and had a bad reaction on other people. And I don't know when it was, but I, I just remember having this like, you know, light bulb go off in my head and saying, I don't need to know everything. In fact, the whole value of having a team around me is that different people bring different skills and capabilities and insights to the business. And so, and it's okay for me to say, you know what, I just don't know. And when I, when I end up being more candid and open, and sometimes I say, I just don't know what to do here. Like you see the temperature in the room now, the virtual room, you know, getting lower. 
And candor breeds, you know, intimacy, candor breeds insight and openness and transparency. And then you all realize that, you know, we're all in this together and let's leverage. And so people now suddenly feel like they've been heard. People feel like their you know, opinion matters and it just creates a much better dynamic. So that's something that I think is super important. Words to live by. Words to live by. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, last question. You're on the board at Datadog, where you've been an investor for a long time and obviously an amazing company. Um, how's being on that board helped you as a CEO at Mongo? Yeah, I would say in general, boards, you know, allow me to, to being a board member allows you to kind of, you know, have the perspective of what a board thinks and sees. And one of the things I realized is as a CEO and a founder, you know, you're so close to business and sometimes it's very easy for you to dismiss board members because they they're seem for, so far removed and they don't really have a good sense of business. But the value of a, a good board members is not that they know every you know in, piece of the business as well as you do, but they can sometimes help you see the forest and the trees because they're not so close to every little issue and they can have some perspective and some balance. They can also have some perspective about things they see in other organizations and other companies and other trends. And so they can be a very useful sounding board. It's also taught me that, you know, the CEO role is a very lonely role because at some level, everyone who speaks to you, whether it's a board member, you know, a direct report, an investor, a colleague or teammate or your partner has some agenda. So it's important, for, you know, in some ways to provide that CEO a safe space to, you know, talk about what's going on, to let them share what's worrying them. You know, what do they worry about, whether it's, a, you know, an exec in one function, whether it's the competitive threat of some new competitor that's been funded, whether it's how will they raise the next round of financing, whatever's top of mind to really be there to support them because the CRO can be a very lonely job. And I think good board members really understand that. Another amazing comment and, and one that I think uh, all CEOs listening will resonate with. Dave, this has been fantastic. Your personal journey is really quite remarkable, and I think one you should be very proud of, and I think people will be exhilarated by hearing more about uh, the MongoDB story. What an amazing journey you guys have been on, and thank you for sharing you know, some, of the, some of the secrets of your success. We'll be rooting from the sidelines and, uh, and, and hoping and expecting more great stuff out of the company, and really appreciate you sharing with us your thoughts today. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Glenn. You're very kind, and it's, it's great to uh, do the session with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. 